And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21, 33 through 46. So I would ask you to do this. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, verse 33 through 46. Now, you might have a phone Bible, but you can do that too. Just chiding, just chiding. So if you would, stand for reading of the Word of God. We are learning in the book of Matthew how to live as kingdom of God people in a world that is running from God, in a world that is changing right before our eyes, and we want to know how to navigate through this world, and we are learning this when we get to the end of our lesson today. Now, I know that you guys, I don't know if you get sick of this or not, but I want to get into every single teaching something prophetic, something that is happening during our times. And uh, I, I try. it has to be jammed in sometimes, but I think it's important that we remember the epoch of time that we're in, which I think we can almost hear. I think we can hear the footsteps of Messiah. He's coming. The king is coming. So uh, this is to, to whom much is given, much is required. The nation of Israel is going to be the landowner. This is the parable of the landowner. And they have been given much, and we have the church have been given much, and so we have responsibilities to our God. Let's see what God has to tell us today. Here another parable. And again, this parable is spoken specifically to the Pharisees and Sadducees of that time. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower, and he leased it to the vine dressers and went to a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers and that, that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent another, other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, he will destroy those wicked and men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits of their, in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation hearing the, bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whom it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. This is the word of God. Our Father, we thank you for this teaching. We thank you that you are showing us that you have done everything for the nation of Israel, but yet they have rejected you and they have been put on hold while the church has come to the forefront to tell the world about the true Jesus. I pray today that you'll speak to each one of our hearts, that we'll come in contact today with the real Jesus, not the make-believe Jesus, but the real one the one that can change your life, save your soul, give you an abundant life. Thank you, Lord. Teach us today things you want us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. 
Now, as you know, Jesus, the theme of Matthew is Jesus is the promised king. And we say this every week, the king is coming, and he's coming. And one of these days, I will not be standing here saying the king is coming because he will have come. And I will tell you, we can't wait for that day. Now, we have been talking about the last week of Jesus. And we're in that section. This is the last week of Jesus' life, and a lot of things are going on. On Palm Sunday, remember, he received his kingship. He came into Jerusalem, and he was hailed as the king. Hosanna, save now Jesus. And then Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem because he knew that in a few short days he would be rejected and crucified. And that city would have to bear the brunt of, their, of, of their con the consequences of their actions. And at 70 A.D., that city would be destroyed. Nero would send an army, and Titus comes, and that army, that army destroys the city of Jerusalem and tears down the temple. That was Sunday. On Monday, he cleansed the temple. Remember, he cast out those who, who bought and sold in the temple, both the buyers and the sellers. And he cast them out. And I don't know if you remember the word, but the word was ekabelo. And it was a Greek word that means with, with, with viciousness, with, with passion, with power. He cast them out of the temple because the temple was not being used for its prescribed purpose. And what we learn from that is that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And what we're to deal with our temple is to cast out, ekbelo, with, with passion, with violence if necessary, sin that comes into our life. We're not to tinker with sin. We're not to pander to sin. We're to recognize it for what it is and cast it out. On Tuesday, Jesus has, I think, his biggest day. He curses the fig tree. The fig tree is a picture of the nation of Israel. And the fig tree wasn't, wasn't functioning as it was, that it was designed to function. And so he curses the fig tree for not producing any fruit. He also will give the Olivet Discourse on Tuesday. That's, that's Matthew chapter 24 and 25, which talks about the future. And it's going to be an interesting thing because we're going to go back into deep prophecy during those teachings. And then the third thing that, that I want to mention to you is that chapter 21 through 26, Jesus is going to be constantly confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. And he's going to be challenged by them constantly. That's on Tuesday. So that is where we are today. The hyper-religious, those people that thought that they were doing everything that they should do, thought they had a free pass into heaven, are shocked by Jesus' teaching, saying, you are the ones that have the problem. You are not coming into the kingdom of God. The harlots, the tax collectors, will enter before you because they were seeking the kingdom of God their way, their way. They were doing a lot of religious activities, and I want to suggest something to you. Today in the church, many people do religious activities. Coming to church doesn't save you, folks. This is a, this is a time when we learn about our Lord. This is a time when we corporately gather together and, and gain encouragement from one another, gain encouragement from the Word on how to make it through the rest of our coming week which oftentimes is a challenge, just making it through the week. But that doesn't save you. What saves you is a personal relationship with Jesus. The day that you say, I can't take another step. I am a sinner separated from a holy God. I have sinned and fallen short of the grace of God. I need you, Jesus, more than I need anything else. When you do that and you believe and receive the gift of salvation, then you are saved. But your communion doesn't save you. All the sacraments that you keep do not save you. Your baptism does not save you. 
It is a personal relationship with Jesus. So that's an important thing to remember. Now, there's bad news for a lot of folks on Judgment Day because you know, we've been to this verse several times, the picture's going to come up here. Watch what it says. These people thought that they were prepared to meet God and they're standing before God. Many will say to me in that day, on that day, that's Judgment Day, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name? That's a big deal in Christendom. In your name, and in your name we cast out demons. Oh, that's another big deal. And in your name perform many miracles. Big deal. And then I, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Folks, the biggest lawless thing that you can do is reject Jesus Christ as your Savior. Lawlessness is a continual, habitual living in a way that is contrary to God. Never, never taking a second thought of your life. Folks, people are caught in all different types of sins. Look at I have a list of sins. I'll just share with you. Lust, jealousy, vanity, greed, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly, because it's mentioned in Scripture. I qualify for all of those. But I'm struggling against those. I'm not giving in to those things. I am fighting the good fight against those things. Now, I might slip from time to time, but I'm not living there. And I'm not identifying as a lust, jealousy, vanity, greed, etc. I'm identifying myself as a child of the living God. I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who I was. This is who I am now. That is who I'm identifying with. Just so you know. Now, we also talked about fear, how fear can enter humanity, and how fear entered the human genome, became part of us with the fall. Remember, Adam, when he sinned, hid himself, and he said he was fearful. He was fearful when he came into contact. Well, he did not want God to expose his fearfulness. Folks, we had a verse and a couple verses that help us with this. It'll come up on the screen when we deal with fear, and we will. Deal with fear and worry, the right stress at the wrong time, and you can catapult into all kinds of crazy thinking. Just go to your home base. Go to something that keeps you stable. And this is one of them that helps me, Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. This is a promise to you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. It's personal. I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will uphold you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Folks, what we are to do, and I go through this over and over, we are to trust in the Lord until I... Good, you got it. Good. Yes. So when you get into worry land, and you will, take a hard stop, refocus, go to the Word, and say, I'm not going there. That is not where I'm living. I'm not going to stay there. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit. You have the ability to overcome any situation because of the power that resides within you, the true believer. It's not automatic that we don't worry. It's not automatic. We must walk in the Spirit. We must dwell in Christ. Remember, we're to make our home in Christ. In John 15, 5, he talks about the vine and the branches. There'll be a picture that comes up here on the screen, and I want you to just remind you of this. In John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. 
This is our energy source. This is our source of power. This is our stability. We are attached and get our strength from our Lord. I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Now notice that fruit is something that comes from naturally abiding in the vine. You don't strain to get fruit. You don't work real hard to get fruit. It's a natural occurrence. Now what is fruit? And I would suggest to you that fruit is a character change that occurs in you naturally because you're abiding in Christ. And all of a sudden, you will start to notice you cha yourself changing. And you will start to exhibit fruits of the Spirit. Love. Oh, gosh, I'm loving. Joy. I'll have joy in my life. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. And, oh, eventually, self-control. Those things will start to occur in your life only if you abide in the vine. When you start walking separate, then all of those character situations start to fail. And you start to go back to old you. And you want to live in old you. Old you is miserable. Nobody likes old you. You don't like old you. So get away from old you. So, so we're talking about staying connected to the vine and being, getting our power there. Now, this week, we're talking about the parable of the landowner. And again, Jesus is speaking specifically to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they're going to finally get it at the end of this parable. So I want you to give, define some terms. The landowner in this discussion is God. The vineyard is the kingdom of God. Some would say the nation of Israel. And I think the nation of Israel had a responsibility for the kingdom. But I think it's about the kingdom of God. And I'll expand on that in just a second. The vine dressers were the, were the leaders of the nation of Israel. Remember, they had the responsibility to tell the world about the true God. And in Isaiah 42, 6, there would be a light to the nations. The servants were the prophets of Israel. And boy, did they suffer. And the son, of course, is Jesus himself, the son of the landowner. So it starts out in verse 33. The landowner provides for his vineyard. So God is going to provide for his vineyard. Now, here, another parable. That word another is alos in the Greek. So it's going to have the same meaning as the one prior to that about the two sons. So it's going to be pointing at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Here, another parable. There was a certain landowner, God, who planted a vineyard, Israel, and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower and leased it to vine dressers. That would be the religious leaders that would have the responsibility of leading Israel in the right direction. And then he, then the vine, and then he, then the, then he go and he, excuse me, the vine dressers, and then he went away into a far country. So picture is the, the vineyard is planted and now God goes away into a far country. That's the picture. So again, the landowner, let's get this indelibly imprinted in our minds. The landowner is God. He planted the vineyard. And immediately it draws our attention to Isaiah chapter 5, which I'm going to expound on to, and more in just a second. The imagery we see here fits the narrative of Israel. However, I think the imagery goes beyond Israel. And let me share with you what many commentators believe to be true. Most commentators associate the vineyard with the messianic kingdom 
that the Jewish people were to offer, offered, but rejected, rejected. So the kingdom would be postponed for them. But notice what God does for his vineyard, for the nation of Israel. He provides for it. He enables it. He does everything for the, for the vineyard. He does everything. He set a hedge around it for protection from animals. He dug a wine press in it. Why would you dig a wine press? Because you're expecting a harvest of grapes to make wine. And then he built a tower in it for protection from the thieves. Now, the word usage that you see here in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7, actually mirrors this example, the example he's talking about here. Listen to what Isaiah 5 says. A song of my beloved regarding his vineyard, the nation of Israel. My beloved God has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. Now, notice what he does. He dug it up. He planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in it. He put a wine press in it, and he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Did not have the harvest expected. And skipping down to verse 5, he says, I will take its hedge away. God had hedged it in for protection. I will take it away. Isaiah is a pre-exilic prophet, meaning it's before they went into exile as a nation. The nations, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians are coming. Isaiah is warning, turn and live. They refuse to turn and live. And so God is saying, I will take away your hedge. It shall be burned. It will lay waste. I won't prune it anymore. Thorns and briars are going to build up. In verse 7, he says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. They had a responsibility. God had done everything for the nation of Israel for them to accomplish the task that they were given, to tell the world about the true God. They refused. They rejected. They ultimately went in to Babylonian captivity. So there's a lesson here for us. God gives a believer, a person, everything to be successful. But that person must respond to what God has provided. It is not automatic. You must respond to the Spirit's leading. The nation of Israel had the civil laws, ceremonial laws, moral laws. They had all the feasts. They had all the prophets. And still they rejected the true God. They all claimed to be true followers of God. And they were not. Think of the church today. There's going to be a little gap here. So it's only going to come up here for a few seconds. So just let's watch me for just a second. Think of the true church today. We are all called by God to be in God's family. We are called to obey the, role, the, the word of God. We all have a role to play within this thing called the church, the called out ones from the world. Remember, it's the ecclesia, the called out ones from the world. You've been called out from the world to be part of God's family. Every person has a role to play within Christ's church. We are to be ambassadors of Christ to the culture around us. We're to be representatives of Jesus. And if you're a representative of Jesus, who must the people see? See Jesus in you. You cannot go to work being you. You cannot act like you. You cannot talk like you. You cannot say what you're thinking. You have to guard yourself because you're representing a king that is much greater than you. 
So that's important. Like a nation of Israel, most people have abdicated their responsibilities. Most Christians in particular are unaware what the word is, says. God gives his people freedom. He does not make you obey him. He directs you. He encourages you. He'll leverage pressure on you. But that ability to obey him is volitional. It's volitional. And then listen to this thing. I want, you, I want to read this statement to you because I believe it to be true. God encourages. God directs you. God provides for you. God has done everything for his church. He has done it for you. You must act. You must cooperate with God. He planted you. He hedged you in. He placed a tower in your life. He dug a wine press expecting you to be productive. Okay, there's a picture here. Good fruit is expected because God has done everything. So this will come on the screen. Okay, so now you can. We all have a responsibility to the landowner, God. Okay, for our lives. To whom much is given, much is required. Now, there's going to be a day of accountability. A day of judgment. Now watch what happens here in verse 34 through 36. Now, when the vintage time came, drew near, that's the harvest. Jesus, that's the coming, he's coming back. He sent his servants, would be the prophets, to the vine dressers, the leaders of Israel, that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants and beat one, killed one, stoned another. I mean, this isn't a very pretty picture for the prophets. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. So these guys are taking a thrashing for giving their world the truth about God. So the servants, again, in this parable are the prophets. And you must know, you must hear this. Whenever there was a problem in the nation of Israel, God sent a prophet. And they had the responsibility. Now, actually, it's a little different than what we have today, but we have the prophetic, what I believe, I'm going to call this the prophetic word of God that we can give to people the truth. In those days, God spoke to the prophet's ear. The prophet would speak to the king or to the people, ex-cathedra, when he heard from God, he would share. He would share. Today, we have the word of God that we all can share with the culture around us. We have a responsibility to do that, so you must know the word must be in the word so that's a strong thing to remember now what happened to these prophets don't overlook this because they were beaten killed stoned rejected that is the plight of a true prophet now we have people today that want to take on the mantle of being a prophet and i don't think they'd be so happy to take on this mantle if they were beaten stoned sawed into thrown in pits, and that sort of thing. I mean, this isn't one of these things you volunteer for. I'll be a prophet. I want to be a prophet. Now, they didn't have prophet schools for those people that were going to take on this, and this, this responsibility. But I want to give you an example of what happened to the nation of Israel. And again, it's 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15 and 16. It'll come up on the screen. The nation of Israel is being prepared to go into Babylonian captivity. Nebuchadnezzar is coming. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians are coming. 
And the prophets are warning and warning and warning. And this is what it says. Second Chronicles 36, 15. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people. They were warning because he had compassion on the people. Extrapolate from, from this for today. We have the word of God and we are to have compassion on those that we love, those that we work with, those that we are in contact with, that we care about, to tell them the truth about what is happening in our world and particularly in our nation. We have a responsibility. If you love them, you'll tell them the what? The truth. You'll tell them the truth. As painful as they don't want to hear, but you have to tell them. And you will be rejected in, in mass, usually, as crazy, lunatics, that sort of thing. So just expect that. So a compassion on his people and his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God. They didn't say, oh, goody, goody, God is speaking. They never, the prophets were mocked, despised. They despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Folks, there is a time when God gives a, peer, a person or a nation over to their sin. You've, you've sinned away your day of grace. No more chances. That's after a long, long prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. Contact after contact after contact with the truth. And yet people reject it. But there is a day when judgment comes. The lesson is clear. Fruit is expected. God has provided. God expects good fruit. Everyone labors. Everyone is expected to produce. Everyone is accountable to God. Accountable to God. Now, that's the rub. That's the problem here. People do not want accountability. When Jason did the, the, the parable on the ten minas, one of the things that was stated in that text is this, and it speaks specifically about we won't have, we won't be accountable to Jesus. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation to him saying, we will not have this man rule over us. This is speaking, Jesus in this parable is speaking about himself to the nation. That's the attitude of the population. In the Invictus poem, the attitude is expressed perfectly what humanism is. In the final phrase of that, that poem, it says this, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's humanism. No, you are not the master of your fate. God is. You are not the captain of your soul. God is. You have the right to rebel against God, but you will suffer the consequences for it. The attitude is this. I will not be accountable to God. I will run my own ship, and I will keep all the fruit for myself. Don't ask me to share anything, because I deserve it. I'm the most important thing in the world. It's all about me, myself, and I. That's right. That's right. Folks, it's about God. I want to do it my way. I'm going to run life my way. I'm going to go where I want, talk like I want, do what I want. The result is, is this. Wrath of God will be ultimately poured out. Think of this. I want you, tell me if this isn't true. The ultimate result of someone rejecting over and over and over ends up being this. I believe you've probably run into this. 
Don't tell me any more about your Jesus. Now, at that point, no more pearls before the swine. Wait for a more opportune time. And that's, there's a time to back off and recognize that. People aren't going to hear you. Uh, the Spirit of God has to open the door and that sort of thing. But when they start saying, don't tell me any more about your Jesus, that's a sign. When they make, degrade you, make fun of you, are hostile to the servants of God, that's a sign. And, and this, happened, this, this depraved, this, this, this false view of Jesus permeates our world. Think about this. Christians today are immersed in a world that tells them it's all about them. Everything is about you. And no, it's not. The purpose of the church is to, does anybody have the answer to this? I'm going to say it, and then you're going to say it after me. Glorify God. Okay, now let's do it again. The purpose of the church is to glorify God. It is not to glorify the person. Now, we benefit by glorifying God. We can have an abundant life when we glorify God. But, oh, the purpose of the church is not all about me. It is about God. This is Jesus' church, folks. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, listen to this. Many Christians today ignore what God says. And you tell me one time that you have not ignored God. We've all fallen into this category at some point, some way. We rationalize, we justify. We're all guilty. We're all guilty. And we ignore that. We're presuming upon the grace of God. And I'll tell you, the ultimate thing that's going to happen to a Christian, if you're genuine, you're going to get what? Something the culture doesn't want to do. Pop, pop, pop. It's called a spanking. Did you ever hear that term before? That used to be something that happened in this country. It doesn't happen very much anymore. It's called a spanking. It's not brutal. It's discipline. It's to get you to change course. Change course. But I want you to think about something also. Since all of us have done this, justifying, rationalizing, going our own way and that sort of thing, don't beat yourself up too much. Because Psalm 103, verses 8 and 10, is a rescue verse for we who have been there and probably go there again. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. Just take a pause and think of those words. That is our God. If it wasn't compassionate and gracious, we would have been snuffed out. Well, we wouldn't take a breath. He would have just snuffed us out at birth, just snuffed us out. He's compassionate and gracious. And oh, this is God, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities and just go, oh, thank you, God. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Folks, you have the Holy Spirit. You've heard the truth. And now you have to deal with the truth. Now, certainly, certainly, they might have killed the prophets, but certainly they won't touch his son, will they? Well, verse 37 through 39. Then last of all, he sent his son. Now, who do you think this is? Jesus. He sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Jesus knew exactly what these people were going to do and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
Now, you need to know this, and I think these leaders knew this, that Jesus had given ample evidence that he is the promised Messiah. Over and over, he did only the things that Messiah would do, but yet was rejected. Now, you know, because you're good Calvary Chapel Bible students, that Messiah, according to rabbinical tradition, would do three miracles that only Messiah would do. I don't have this on the board, so just memorize these three things. There's three things, okay? Number one, heal a leper. Number two, cast out a demon from someone who is deaf and could not speak. And number three, heal a blind man from birth. This had never been done in the history of Israel. All the rabbis, all the leaders knew that this was an indication that the one who does this is the real Messiah. Jesus did this, but yet was rejected. They deliberately rejected him. Why, why did these rejectors, what did they really want? They wanted to seize the kingdom, so to speak, to do it our way, to go by our traditions. We don't need Jesus. He's not doing exactly what we think he should do. We want to do it our way. The Jewish leadership thought that they would inherit the kingdom their way, our way. Folks, that is wrong thinking, wrong thinking. Now, there's a fate, verse 40 through 41. The fate of the rejectors is sealed. And these guys are going to get this in just a moment. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, Jesus is going to ask this question. What will he do to those vine dressers? He's addressing these guys face to face. Remember, it's in the temple. There's literally thousands of people there privy to this information that's going out by Jesus. Remember, it's Passover and the temple is full when Jesus is speaking. This is, this is, he said, what should you do to these vine dressers? And they respond this way. They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably. They're pronouncing their own sentence. And lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. Now, you know this, but just for completeness sake, all who reject the Son will be judged, will be destroyed miserably, is the quote. This judgment will be thorough and complete. You must realize that all humans will be judged. Believers will be judged at the Bema Seat judgment, that's what it's called, for works done after salvation. We're expected to do works for our Lord after salvation. You'll be judged for those. You'll be held accountable for those. Unbelievers will be judged for their sins at the great white throne judgment. When the books are open, they will be found lacking and wanting, and they will end up in the lake of fire forever. Your sins will never be judged. They're already covered by the blood of Christ. So that's the, that's the picture here. So everyone will give an account of themselves to God. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone. Everyone will be turned inside out and exposed. There will be no excuses on that day. There will be no flim-flamming on that day. There will be no justifying and rationalizing on that day. That day, everything will be exposed. Watch this, Romans 14, 12. So then every one of us will give an account of himself to God. Hebrews 4, 13. There's nothing hidden from God's sight. All things are naked 
and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Account. In both those verses, an account. An account means this. Means this. Inward thoughts and feelings are exposed. Every inward thought, every feeling will be exposed for what it is. I'm telling you, that's scary stuff. That's scary stuff. At least to me, it's scary stuff. The consequence to the Jewish nation, the vineyard will go to another entity. That would be the church. That would be the church. Now, you need to know that many people in Christendom, actually the vast majority of Christians today, are replacement theologians. They believe that the church has been replaced with Israel, and they use this text, and along with many others, okay, delete, delete, rewind, delete, <laughs> thank you, that Israel has been replaced by the church. Thank you, Bereans. I thought I said that, but who knows what's coming out of here? <laughs> so Israel has been replaced by the church. Now, and they, they say that God is done with Israel. We know that God is not done with Israel, that the time has been, they've been set aside for a time, set aside for a time. God now uses the church as his vehicle to tell the people in the world about himself. Okay, so that's, that's the picture here. The new Jewish nation rejected, and the Jewish nation is set aside. They've been postponed. The kingdom has been postponed until the Jews will come in. Now, that'll happen in the tribulation period. The whole purpose of the tribulation period is for the Jews to have their eyes opened to who Messiah is. And they actually won't believe until the very end of the tribulation. It's an amazing thing. Now, you must know that the tribulation period is that seven-year period at the end of time. And I believe the church is gone before the tribulation starts because God is focusing on a new entity called Israel. He's Israel. He's going back to the entity called Israel. The church will be gone. So the tribulation will be the consequences of their rejection. It'll be the worst time in the history of the world. Matthew 24, 21, Jesus says this. For there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. And then he adds this on. Nor ever shall be. Now, I want you to think about something. Think about Nero. Think about the circus where he had people eaten with lions. How they were sacrificed in the Colosseum. How they're lit up on the roads, on fire, burned at the stake. Any number of horrible ways to kill people. Think of the Holocaust. Think of all the wars. There will be no time worse than this tribulation. Folks, that's what's coming to this world. That's what's being set up right now. That we're, we're prelude to this. I believe the church will be extracted before this happens, but the church isn't going to get away scot-free, folks. You can see right now that there's suffering coming for true believers in Jesus. They're already suffering throughout the world like never before. It's coming to our house. It's coming to our house. Know whom you believe in. Dig your feet in. Say, I will not be moved, no matter what. But anyway, that's what's coming. Verse 42 through 44 Jesus is going to be the crushing stone. Now, look at everybody looks at Jesus as the Sunday school Jesus, and he is that. But he is also the crushing stone. He will come in judgment. And when he comes back, and he's on that white horse coming back, and the armies of heaven are coming with him, folks, that is judgment, and that is a bloody mess when you read the, the book of Revelation. It is a mess. 
42 through 44 says this. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? He held them accountable as we are being held accountable to know the signs of the time. Have you never read? He's almost like disgusted with these leaders. Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, you know from scripture that Jesus is the chief cornerstone, the, the, the building block of the church. This was the Lord's doing. It was his plan, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing fruits of it. I've read too far. But anyway, stop there. Well, and I have not. Verse 44. Whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, when you think of stone or you think of rock, Think God. That is a picture for God. Stone and rock is frequently used of God in the Bible. Psalm 118.22, which they are quoting here, the stone that the builders rejected. Now, you know that the church is built on the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 16.18, you'll have a picture that comes up on the screen. Jesus is saying to Peter, as they were looking at these pan gods that are being worshipped in northern Israel on this rock face. And he says to Peter, and I also say to you that you are Peter Petros, little pebble, little small tiny pebble. And on this rock, I think he's speaking of himself, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now think about this. The gates of hell will not hold back Messiah's kingdom. Will not. There's nothing Satan can do to stop the kingdom of God from coming. There's nothing he can do. And I believe that there is a physical kingdom coming, a real millennial thousand-year kingdom that is coming. But also I believe that every person in the church age that is born again of the Spirit is part of that kingdom spiritually. And you're a kingdom representative at that time. So the church age will end with the rapture of the church. Israel will go through a seven-year tribulation period called the time of Jacob's trouble. Messiah will return at his second coming and rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. Believing Israel will enter the kingdom. Now listen to this. With church age believers and tribulation believers and Old Testament believers. Remember, all of Israel will be saved in Romans 11.25, but that all of Israel is the remnant that believes at the very end of the tribulation. And we know from Zechariah that that will be one-third of the Jewish people, that their eyes will be open and they believe. That is the all of Israel. And I want you to think about this. The church is comprised of mainly Gentile believers. We, have the, we will have the privilege of entering the kingdom with believing Israel as we are grafted in. That kingdom is prepared for the Jewish people. We will reign in it because we have been grafted in to the vine, Israel. So just thought about that. Now think about, it's, it, think about this. Jesus is your cornerstone 
or he is your crushing stone. And the, and the encouragement here is build your life on the rock, not on the sand, not on the sifting sands. Build your life on the rock, not on the sand, or be crushed by the rock. It's just that simple. Now, there is a picture that's going to come up on the screen. It's rather busy. It's a busy picture. But I want you to notice, this is a Nebuchadnezzar statue. This represented kingdoms, Gentile kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome are the two legs. And there's a ten toes, ten nation confederation. What you need to remember, never ever forget about this. These Gentile kingdoms thought they were great and wonderful and powerful and all that. God called them beasts, representing the beast system. Each kingdom has attributes of the preceding kingdom. Persia took on attributes of Babylon, etc., all the way down to the ten tones who has attributes of all these evil kingdoms. And the stone is God, is Jesus. He's going to crush this ten-nation confederation when he comes back. Let's read it. Daniel 2, 34 through 35. A stone was cut out without the hands. Remember, stone is God, which struck the image upon its feet. That'll be the ten nations, which were of iron and clay, and broke them to pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were broken to pieces. They became chaff, came like chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no place was found for them. The stone that struck the image became a great mountain. A mountain is symbolic of kingdoms and filled the whole earth. When you do a study on mountain, it'll, you'll reveal that you would be a kingdoms. And Jesus is going to come back and he will reign and there will be no more kingdoms after him. Does everybody get it? Somewhat. Okay. Well, we'll continue to revisit these things as we go. So, this is about judgment. Ground to powder. Ground to powder. That's the word uses that Jesus used. Ground to powder. The chief priests and the Pharisees, the light bulb goes off. Oh, you're speaking about us. You're speaking about us. Verse 44, 45 and 46. And now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived, brilliant men they are, that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, that means tried to kill him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. These leaders finally get it. And folks, this is in your face, Pharisees. He was speaking of them. Now make no mistake, they are determined to kill Jesus. They will at the appointed time, not before, not after, at the appointed time, Jesus will die. Extrapolate from that your passing. You will not pass from here until your appointed time. Just realize that. So you don't have to bite your fingernails. Oh, no, it's coming. It's coming. It will come at your appointed time. So be at peace until that time. And then you're gone. Then you're done. So the, the cross did come. Their hate moment would arrive. They would torture Jesus and they would kill Jesus. But folks, there was resurrection Sunday where there was victory over the grave. Remember, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And one of the things he came to destroy was, was two things, sin and death. Death will be destroyed. In closing, to whom much is given, much is required. 
the chief priests, the Pharisees, our world, the mainstream church does not want the real Jesus. The real Jesus is profoundly rejected by the religious elite. Okay, that's the picture here. Humanity, now please hear this. Humanity has been duped, fooled. The Antichrist spirit is in full swing right now. And again, I always want to get something prophetic into the teaching. And I believe this to be true. The restrainer, the Holy Spirit-filled church, is the only one holding back the avalanche of evil. What does our country now want to do with the church, which used to be a stabilizing factor in the culture? It wants to silence the church. It wants the church off into a corner. It has kicked God out of all of its activities, except you stay in the church. Don't ever go beyond your borders of the church. We can't do that because we have a message that we take to humanity, to the world. We've been commanded by our commanding officer, which supersedes the government, that we must tell the people the truth about who Jesus is. So, I want to ask you a question. How about today in your world? Do people you know want to hear about the real Jesus? The Jesus of the Bible. Or are they more content with a Jesus of their making? A make-believe Jesus. Well, my Jesus would do this. My Jesus would do that. Well, your Jesus doesn't exist. He might be Jesus down in Mexico, but he is not Jesus of Nazareth. Most people want Jesus to give them their heart's desires. A Jesus that I control, that I can control. A Jesus that will do just what I want. Folks, you don't want that Jesus because you're so depraved, you don't even know how to ask properly. The real Jesus, the crushing stone Jesus, the righteous Jesus, the only way to God Jesus, the Jesus that says, come and follow me, be like me. That's what that following is. The one who says, deny yourself, Take up your cross and follow me. What does it take up your cross mean? Die to the self-life. That's what taking up your cross is. This real Jesus people don't want. Tragic though true. Masses of people. Now listen to this. If you've checked out, this would be a time to check in just for a second. Masses of people are set up for the greatest deception of all time. Islam is expecting the Mahdi. That'll be the Antichrist. The Jesus they want is coming. The Jesus that this world is looking for is coming. This Jesus will be charming. He'll be brilliant. He'll be a financial wizard. He's very concerned about your 401. A peacemaker. He will appeal to all of humanity's whims. This Jesus. People will love him. He'll be charismatic. He'll have a charming personality. He'll be a globalist. A one world government proponent. All for one and one for all. Humanity forever. Never, never worshiping the true God. He will then, listen to this, he will then turn it into your worst nightmare. He'll demand to be worshiped as God. He is known as the Antichrist. That word anti in the prefix means instead of, instead of, or against. Can mean both in this situation. He's called the beast. He's called the lawless one. He is called the son of perdition. He's called umpteen things in scripture. He'll promote himself as the Christ and the world will love him. Paul describes 
the reason that they love Paul will describe a strong delusion. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10 through 11, they'll come up on the screen. They perished because they did not accept the love of the truth. They did not accept the real Jesus, the one that loves them and died for them and gave everything for them, revealed themselves. They reject him. In order, they accept the love of the truth that they'd be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion that they would believe the lie, believe the falsehood. The lie is that the Antichrist is the Christ. That is the strong delusion. They will think they're worshiping the real Christ, the Christ that they, they want, the Christ that will give them everything. Deception is the next slide that will come up. Those who are deceived, those who buy into this rhetoric, deceive others, who deceive others can also be deceived. They will be deceived. All the warnings, loud and clear, all the warnings Jesus made against deception was to his disciples, the ones that really were following him, the ones that really wanted to hear the truth to his disciples. Only proud people think they cannot be deceived. The warning in Matthew when we get into the Olivet Discourse is do not be deceived. Deception, 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 deception. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming in waves. A spirit of delusion is already resting on many in the body of Christ. And in the days to come, a strong delusion will rest on many who do not love the truth. It is into this world that we are living now. You've been placed here for this time. So have a clue what is coming. What is happening in our world today has been predicted in the scriptures. We are to be aware. We are to know. As Jesus said to the Pharisees, have you not read? Folks, we're responsible. We're responsible. I want you to think about this. Think. You follow the real Jesus. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit. You have the spirit of truth resident within your being. You have the power in you to stand for the truth. You do. You do if you tap into his power. You have the power to not waver when the winds of change hit your house, come to your country, come to your workplace, come to your family. They will. You have the word of God, which is the truth. And folks, this word is our focal point. This is what we concentrate on. It is our plumb line. It is true to whom much is given. For him, much will be, recover, re, re, be required. This is talking about stewardship. Being responsible to God for what he has given you. He's given you this word. We are responsible to this. We have been given his word to carry out our mission. We are to be stewards of everything that we have. Our time, talent, treasure, everything for his glory. In 1 Corinthians 4.2, we read this about stewardship. It is required of a steward that one be found faithful. Faithful to the end. We in America have been given much. Folks, this is the land of the free and the home, land of the strong, the home of the free. However it goes, we are, that's where we live, or we used to live. We used to live there. <laughs> As America changes, devolves into darkness, may we, the true church, be faithful stewards of the truth. And may I say that to the end, may we finish strong, may we not cower, we have been given much. May we be faithful. May we be faithful. 
There's a picture here. Actually, it's coming up. It's out of sequence. But for everyone to whom much is given, much will be required. You have been given much. May you be found faithful. May this be said of you. Now you have, let's me go through this again. You have the power of the Holy Spirit within you. Jesus promised you, he gave this to his disciples in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes epi upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Folks, that is, trans, that is not just the disciples. That is for us, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the Spirit of God that can come on you at the time of crisis to empower you like you cannot believe to accomplish your task. You are not weak. You are not fragile. You are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stay connected to the power source. May this be said of you. When you finish your race, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith through the power of God resident in me. I've tapped into it. God used me, and I finished the race because he empowered me to finish. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us to study your word. Holy Spirit, please do your work inside of each one of us. I pray that everyone here, in earshot, however they hear this message, knows you as their Savior. And if they do not, that this would be the time they say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, I'm headed to hell, and I'm asking you to rescue me. And I believe that you died for me, and I receive the gift of salvation that you offer. That I believe and receive the gift. I commit myself to you. Place my trust in you as my Savior. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for saving me. I pray that happens to people today that hear this message. In Jesus' name, amen.